Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Welcome back to another episode. I'm Bill Real. I want to talk today about myth, and I want to just describe uh, the ideas behind what myth is and how uh, pervasive it is in our culture and society and the purpose that it serves. I hope to be short today. I hope to uh, cover a little bit of ground and see where we get to. When I think of myth, I often think of Joseph Campbell, who helped me understand, uh, as his book is titled, The Power of Myth. Myth is essentially any story we tell about ourselves, about the place we live, about our growing up, about the culture around us, about our history, about the objects that we use in our day-to-day life, and it's the way in which we give meaning. If you remember, several episodes back, we had a conversation where we talked about myth and how in development, this comes from the book Sapiens, written by Yuval Harari, when you understand that we, whatever we were hundreds of thousands of years ago, at some point we didn't have language and we were uh, not the strongest or the fastest or the fiercest animal out there, but we began to learn how to cooperate in what we would call today tribes, tribes of people. And that to some degree, uh, the cohesiveness of that tribe depends on certain behaviors taking place. And so uh, a small, small group can coexist and cooperate together based on their intimacy with each other, that they are familiar. And when I use intimacy, I mean that, familiar. They have a familiarity with each other. So they knew who the good hunter was, and they knew who the good gatherers were. They knew who was best to um, weave vines together. We knew who was best at climbing a tree. And because of our familiarity, we knew how to work together to get the most out of our group. But that only works for a very small group. And as a group gets bigger, it needs other things to bind it together. When we look at the primates, uh, other uh, chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, bonobos, other kinds of uh, primate species besides humans, we find that grooming plays a big part in their cohesiveness. There are dynamic differences, by the way, in how a group of bonobos work together and act uh, culturally and socially among each other uh, compared to orangutans or um, gibbons or gorillas. And so we ought not to lump these animals together uh, in the same kinds of categories, that they are all each their own species and behave differently. And we ought to just understand that most of these species, though, cooperate and cohabitate in ways that involve grooming as the cohesive mechanism, this care and concern for each other, because they don't have the same degree of language that the rest of us do. Sure, they can make noises, and those noises mean things. Um, but to put complex sounds together to create words and sentences, uh, entire phrases of meaning, is just outside their reach. There is some evidence, by the way, that indicates that there are some among the primates that are beginning for the first time uh, to edge their way uh, into language. 
and are progressing in their development of use of tools. So a tribe can, of any species, and we're talking primates here, but a tribe of any species can be cohesive with you know, easily 10 to maybe as much as 25 or so just based on intimacy. But the grooming allows a larger group of primates to work together cohesively in groups of upwards of 75 to 150. And there's a certain amount of cooperation that can occur. And so you can imagine if you go back hundreds of thousands of years, you would have this tribe of uh, grooming animals uh, in in the primate family that would far outlast and would annihilate a group simply based on intimacy because one group would be much larger, hence stronger than the other. It's what has allowed primates, but specifically humans, to flourish upon the planet is this idea that we at some point created language. And by having language, we now could create myth stories. Because up until then, we could only use, as we use language, the first thing we did was create gossip. And gossip also allows a group of about 75 to about 150 um, to work together and to uh, be able to cooperate and be cohesive as a group. Because now we can't know enough about everybody in a group of 150, but we can know someone who can tell us that they know that other person that we don't, that we are not as familiar with. And so gossip allowed, once we created language and hence invented uh, gossip, we now could uh, survive in larger groups of 75 to 150. But beyond 150, we needed something else, and that thing is myth. The moment we could create a story and picture this, we send the, the U.S. Marines out, and they are 500 uh, uh, members uh, of various units working together on a battlefield uh, to carry out the authority, the, the leader, uh, his plan. And in carrying that out, you trust that the guy next to you, simply because he wears the same uniform you do, that you can trust that his motives and his intentions are to work side by side with you and to help you accomplish something. It's a myth. The moment we can create stories about us and them, we create ways in which us can work together and we can keep them at bay. And so myth has uh, been one of the greatest tools in helping us humans move far beyond the primates, uh, the other primates, into a place of where we can do things that no other species on this planet can even even imagine. Uh, I remember watching a Louis C.K. comedy special where Louis C.K. talked about how limited the imagination of a dog is, that you could play fetch with a dog for an hour, but the moment he doesn't see you throw the stick, he is clueless to where it is. He can't use his imagination to figure out that that stick is just about in the same spot you've thrown it for the last hour. So then you point to the uh, where that object has been thrown, except that the dog stares at the tip of your finger because he can't imagine the imaginary line that comes off the end of your finger that goes all the way to the spot where you just threw the stick. And yet humans have this wide ability for uh, awareness of time, and across things that are outside of your uh, awareness that would be like a, a people in Africa. We have some ability, where I'm standing right now in St. George, Utah, to at least to some degree imagine what life is like for these other people in this other place. And no dog's doing that. No dog's imagining what another dog across the country is thinking about or doing. And, and nor are the primates as outside of us, as far as we know, thinking about anything as complex as that. And so our ability to create myth has been a huge factor in us 
being able to band together as an entire country of millions when there is a pressing need. But myth also pits us against each other. Myth creates good guys and bad guys, and myth assigns meanings that don't necessarily hold up. I'll give you an example. We used to be based on silver and gold. If, if it, I work as a pawnbroker in a pawn shop in Hurricane, Utah for a company named Family Pawn, and right now I'm recording in my store that I manage. I'm looking at our precious metals case. In that case is everything from 10th ounce gold coins to one ounce gold coins from uh, one ounce silver rounds and silver bars up to a uh, hundred ounce brick of silver, a uh, hundred ounce silver bar. And as I look at these metals, I, I recognize, I can see right here that there are gold coins from the 1800s that made up our $1 piece, our $5 piece, our $10 piece, our $20 piece. And these coins are uh, made of gold and we assign a value to them in the 1800s of a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars. This is how you would have bought your goods. Now, the idea that gold and silver are valuable is a myth. It's just a metal in the ground. But we humans came along and we said that metal looks interesting and it's hard to get. So when we make a nice gift for somebody 10,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, when we made a nice gift for somebody, making it in something that was rare and pretty was a sign of the a degree to which we loved and cared about that person. So you have these objects. If we go back into uh, ancient civilizations in Central and South America, we find that uh, when the explorers came here, they found objects made of gold or a gold-like substance called tumbaga. And as uh, ancient peoples and civilizations, as they made objects out of these rare and pretty uh, substances that were in the ground, these things were assigned value. Now, there isn't any money around at the moment, but they're assigned value. And so these things have some worth to them because of how difficult they are to, uh, to get and how difficult they are to produce something from them. And as time went on, if we fast forward now to the 1800s, uh, by this point, we've got uh, certainly money systems in the world. Uh, they've been around for a long time. Various countries come to using money systems, which again is a myth uh, at various times uh, in each country's history. But by the 1800s, we are, are fabricating coins, which is just a piece of metal in the ground that we've attributed value to. And now we put a stamp on each side. And on one of those sides, we name a numerical value that that coin is worth. Now that piece of gold in reality is worth nothing. It's just a piece of metal in the ground. But we collectively agree on what its worth is. And that way, on each side of a negotiation, we have a agreed upon value that we now can do uh, some type of business and negotiating that business. So when you go to the 1800s and you see that America was a financial system based on silver and gold, and that such is a myth. And then we fast forward and we start to print paper money which is a much less valuable substance. Easier to get, trees are all over the place. It is easily accessible and it's easy to produce. Much easier to get and to create from than gold or silver. So we create paper money, which is worthless compared to gold and silver. But what we do is we now assign it a similar value and say that it is based on gold and silver somewhere. So now you have gold and silver that's a myth. And now you have paper money, which is another myth based on a myth. 
And then we go beyond that. At some point, we say, you know what? This isn't uh, this isn't going to work out. We don't we don't have enough silver and gold to cover all this. Silver and gold's price goes up. We're not going to be able to stock so much as money continues to get produced, and as the value of money, um, as more money is needed, because everything has more value. And so we need to come up with something else. And so now we move away from basing our paper myth on a metal myth, and we move to a paper myth on its own. So now we just all collectively agree that this thin shaving of a tree with some ink printed on both sides is worth a significant amount of value compared to what it costs to get this and to make it. But, but we don't stop there. As time goes on for convenience, we create a new myth of credit cards and debit cards, MasterCard, Visa, and American Express. Don't leave home without it. It's a piece of plastic, which is even easier to produce and even easier to create something from. And we now say that this thing is a myth, and it is based on the myth of paper money, which used to be based on the myth of silver and gold, but no longer is. And so when we look around and we say like, I'm born in America, but there is a little tiny invisible line that separates me as an American from that guy as a Mexican, from that guy as a Guatemalan, from that guy as a Puerto Rican. These myths give us cause to fear anyone who's different than us. And these myths give us cause to distrust any group of people that's not our group of people. And the reality is we are all humans living on various points of a rock, a giant rock that's flying through space at millions of miles per hour. And the reason I wanted to talk about all of that was to get to this idea of can we step back and see the myth in our own lives? And so when I look at my life, I have four children. I've got a wonderful wife. I've got a job. Um, I, I have friends. I have extended family of uh, a father. I have a mother who's passed away. I have a brother. I've got aunts and uncles and cousins. I've got grandparents who are deceased. And all of this is a myth. And, and what I mean by that is take, for instance, your friendships. When you have a friend, you and this friend agree to like each other. That's what makes you friends. You don't have a friend who hates you. That's not a friend. A friend is somebody that you have collectively agreed with to like each other and to want to at least on some level at some time be in each other's space. But the moment that person decides to take offense at something you've done, the moment that person decides that uh, this thing isn't working or they find other friends they choose to hang around and hence their social life is so full of other people that you no longer get any of their time or any of their energy, then that friendship diminishes and may diminish to the point where it doesn't even exist. That in order for this thing called friends to even continue, both sides have to continue investing time and energy into each other. And each person in that friendship has ideas about what the other person thinks of them and what they think of that person. But at any moment, new data can come out and can change the assumptions that we've made. And as I was talking about in the last episode, we never really do capture reality as it really is. So even these stories we tell about ourself, about our spouse, about our kids, about our parents, they're limited. They're full of blind spots and inaccuracies, and they miss the mark, but they are the best that we can do, and so we do them. And when you recognize all around you, when I look at, for instance, everything going on in this country with our president, President Trump, and with the George Floyd 
I can't breathe and the riots and COVID-19, I realize just how fragile this system is. This system that's a myth. Here you are, a citizen of the United States of America. And what is the United States of America? It is uh, a geographic location where everybody was born into an us group. And this us group, essentially, we have collectively agreed, at least to some degree, we've, uh, we've collectively agreed that we are going to be the United States of America. And we've created some rules and limitations to how that works. We've created some benefits to how that works. And most of that has been very general, at least the ones that uh, have essentially lasted since the beginning are general. But even the ones that have lasted from the beginning have been interpreted in various ways. In other words, even the things we are founded upon, the very principles and benefits and responsibilities that we have defined with words, that those words are often reinterpreted, reassigned, given new meanings, um, certain meanings are closed off. So, so there is no consistency. So when we give language to try to describe something, but there really is no consistency in that thing, or those words fall short in actually describing it, you are essentially stating a myth. And so to be a member of the United States of America and to say, yeah, we're the greatest country on earth, well, not really. That's a thing we say. It's a myth that we tell. It's a narrative that we impose. But when we look at the data, the data says that our country, when, it, when all the factors that we humans have collectively said are important to us to determine which country is the best, things like wealth and happiness, opportunity, a chance to uh, have an education at an affordable price, the chance to be free and to move about and to do what one wants or wishes to do, we actually come in somewhere around 12th. Maybe we're not the best country on earth. Maybe that's just a myth. And when you understand that religious systems and other systems, political systems, for example, they like us collectively believing in these myths because these myths keep us working together. And so when you take certain unhealthy systems, they don't have a problem being deceptive and dishonest about their myth story because it cr creates collaboration and cohesiveness. And part of being almost awakened is beginning to sense all of this as it's happening, not only across the breadth of this world and maybe even the universe, but also across the expanse of time to understand how our ancient ancestors, the algae, slowly turned into this species that developed language and awareness that was far beyond any other species on this planet. And being almost awakened means that we have to start as we sense the myth all around us. Once you see it, it calls you to be present because none of it's real. Any moment in the past that you try to mem uh, remember, try to recall, try to describe, will fall short of what it actually was. Any moment in the future is completely unknown. And so all you have is this moment right here. None of the myth is real, but what you can do is be you and observe the world and try as much as possible to improve it, to protect others from being harmed, to try to sense what the potential is for this world in terms of how we treat people, how we keep people from being marginalized, how we try to help uh, be better stewards of this great planet. Once you recognize that we're just one species among many, that we're actually the most harmful and dangerous species on this planet in terms of the damage done to other animals, and done to this rock that's flying through space and perhaps even beyond 
uh, damage done beyond this planet. We can start to deconstruct the myths around us. Myths are meaningful. We're welcome to hang on to the ones that are useful. I have a, a, a myth in my head about the relationship with my wife. I tell myself stories about how she feels for me, what she thinks of me, what she wants of me, what needs I can fulfill of hers. And I like that myth. It makes me happy. Every night I go home from work and I sit with my wife and we watch TV or we sit in the backyard or we go for a hike or we go out to dinner or we go dancing. I enjoy the company of this other human and every story inside my head about who she is and what we are and what we mean to each other and what we think and feel about our, each other, ourselves, in the world isn't reality. But hopefully it gets close. And these myths are meaningful to us. And so... As we're aware of all the myth around us, we can begin to stop some of the bullshit. The United States of America is a country that came into existence in 1776. The idea of what the United States of America is has constantly been changing and morphing. If any of us think that a thousand years from now, the United States of America is uh, still here, Maybe not even by name, and if by name, certainly not the same United States of America that we're talking about as we point to the future of it. Here we are in 2020. Is this the same country, the same ideal, the same narrative story? Does that same story hold up if we went back into 1792 and sat with a hundred Americans and asked them, what does it mean to be an American? What, what do Americans believe? What do Americans want? What do Americans go for? What do they, what do they have the right to? What do they have the responsibility of? And that would be very different. And so when you sense that all of these myths that are around us have a time existence, they are created at some point and they also end at some point. Nothing lasts forever. And once you recognize that nothing lasts forever, you are again called to be present, to sit right here, right now. It has helped me a ton as I've thought about myth, as, my, as I talked in the last episode about my kids getting in arguments with each other, or my wife and I getting mad at each other and beginning to get into some type of conflict or confrontation. Once you let go of your need to be right, of which you really never are exactly, then you can start to just be in peace. You can start to just be present and to be kind and compassionate, to be thoughtful and aware. And it really is the awakened way to live. Think about it over the next few days. What are all the myths in your life? Do you see the myths that those around you have perpetuated? That they insist are real? That you, you have to just accept? Do you see the systems in place that try to tell you stories about what is and how it came to be and what it will turn into? And how much those myth stories miss the mark? Take time over the next few days to think about all of those myths in your life. To think about what, what are you? And at the end of the day, you really are just the observer behind the eyes. And that your responsibility is to be kind, is to be compassionate, is to protect people from harm and trauma as much as we can. And to help us all live peaceably with the other species on this planet and on this giant rock itself. This very moment right here is real. As an experience to you. It's your real experience. This is the only real moment you get is right here, right now. Until next time, this is the Almost Awakened Podcast. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, 
or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.